بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم أجمعين سبحانك لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم So we are studying uh, a, the book titled Educating Children, Classical Advice for Modern Times. And um, essentially it is a translation of the great scholar Imam Ramli's book titled Riyadat al-Sabyan. And that a commentary provided by our dear brother, Ustad Abdul Aziz Ahmed, may Allah preserve him. And so we've reached the, the section that he titles The Age of Discrimination. And the lines of poetry state, and then we will translate them. وَإِنْ بَدَتْ أَمَارَةَ التَّمْيِيزِ وَكُلِّ فَهْمٍ فَاضِلٍ عَزِيزِ وَصَارَ يَسْتَحِي مِنَ الْأُمُورِ فَذَاكَ أَوَّلُ بُدُوِّ النُّورِ هَدِيُّتُ مِنْ رَبِّهِ أَهْدَاهَا عَرَفْ بِهَا الْأَشَّاءِ بِمُقْتَضَاهَا which translates as, When the signs of discernment and blessed subtle understanding appear, and he becomes shy of matters, it is the first sign of the light, which is a gift gifted by his Lord. He knows by it things as they should be. That is the first moment in the child's understanding that the light of intellect ascends upon him. Okay. And so he's going to speak about a new stage uh, in the child's development. And this is what is called the sin at tamiz. And this is an important new stage in the child's development because um, there are a number of things that begin to happen at this stage. And there are a number of ahkam of the sharia, rules of the sacred law that then will now apply. And it is characterized by what he says here, is that it's the sign, the first light appears. The light here, what he's referring to, the light of the intellect. And this is why it is called the sinatamiz. In Arabic, mayyaza yumayizu is to discern something. It's to have the ability to discriminate that something, to tell what is really happening. And um, it is the first stage of the development of the aql, of the intellect. And there is so much that could be said about the importance of the intellect. If you look at what the ulama say about it, um, it really that comes clear that this is really the goal of the religious life is to have every aspect of the human being in line with the intellect. And the intellect, though, has to be fueled by, of course, knowledge of the sacred law and also good thinking skills. But in reality, this is really about intellect. The spiritual path, the religious life, returning to Allah Tabarakotada safety, is that safely. So much of it relates to this idea of sound intellect in thinking correctly, in making good decisions. And the intellect is a light. It is a light whereby which we can distinguish what it is that we should be doing and what it is that we should be avoiding. And at the higher that level and at the higher dimension of the intellect, it is the faculty whereby which that we know. And so when we've spoken before about the internal dimension of the human being and how that we have on one hand, if we want to simplify it, that we have enoughs, that we have a, let's translate it here as that lower self or ego. And this relates to the world. It's attached to the material. And then you have a heart which is connected to that nafs. But then on the other side of the heart, if you will, if you think of it as sides in this sense, that you have the ruh, you have the spirit. And what oversees the heart in its connection to the nafs and its connection to the ruh is the aql, is the intellect. So that 
all of this, what takes place in our path to Allah Taala, transpires at the level of the heart. All of the different types of thoughts that come to us happen at the level of the heart. And that this is where the intellect becomes so important. What thoughts do we follow and what thoughts do we avoid? What thoughts do we put into practice and what thoughts do we reject? All of this requires intellect. And so the intellect really is that right at the heart of this religion. And that when we, we, we had, um, uh, had mentioned that uh, recently about this amazing verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that He has revealed that this Qur'an in Arabic so that you may understand. And so there's something about the Quranic revelation and the Arabic language specifically is that <clears throat> it nurtures and it feeds the intellect. And it gives you an ability to be able to make good decisions and to be able to put everything in its proper place. <clears throat> so you could go on and on about the importance of intellect. Uh, and Imam Hujjat al-Islam al-Ghazali has a very interesting section in the last part of Book 1 uh, on knowledge from the Ihya al-Mudin and it's been translated into English by uh, Dr. Kenneth Hanerkamp and you can read it um, where he speaks in great detail about the intellect and its importance and its divisions and so forth and so on. And it's something that we should, we should come to know. And so that what is important then about the age of discrimination is that now the child has the inability to do certain things that previously that they weren't able to do. There's something special is that, that when we talk about the formation of the aql, the intellect, is that <clears throat> this is a distinct stage. <coughs> Excuse me. Whereas before that is that children just simply don't know and that we have to keep them safe and to allow environments for them to play and that oftentimes it's in their play that they're learning. Now this doesn't mean that we neglect them completely and that we don't start teaching them adab from an early age, of course. But there's something special that happens at the age of discrimination and this is what he's going to guide us to. And so he says, When the signs of discernment and blessed subtle understanding appear, and he becomes shy of matters, it is the first sign of light. Okay, And so there is a relationship between this hayat, this modesty that starts to develop, as the first stages of the intellect come to the surface. And so Sheikh Abdul bin Ahmed Basudan, who is a commentary on this poem, is that he says, Tamiz discernment, is differentiation between similar things. So now they're able to differentiate. Okay, this could harm someone. Okay, that could actually that make someone feel good. Oh, this is hot. This is cold. Um, that this could get me in trouble. Is that this could that bring uh, happiness to my parents. The scholars define the age of discernment as the time when the child is able to differ differentiate between that which will harm him and that which will benefit him. And there's a number of different um, criterion that they give to determine the stage. And it's interesting that they don't actually give an age. So they don't say it's seven. Because for some children it happens at age five, at age five other children it happens at age six, and some it might not happen until age seven. Some say that discernment is, is an intellectual ability that we use to extract meanings. It has also been said that it is the visualization of the meaning from the words of the speaker. So we have different criterion whereby which we determine this. But when the child is able to discern what is harmful and what is beneficial, he or she holds back from disliked actions. So that this is where this concept of haya is introduced. Um, because modesty um, is that, that it relates to this idea of holding back or being reticent. And that when the ability to discern appears, the child becomes reticent about doing actions that might be considered to be bad. So that this is now a new stage 
Whereas before, it's, it might not be something that they are aware of. And slowly, as this develops, it's very important for the parents now to interact with that child according to those developments so that they know exactly um, what it is to say and what it is to avoid as the child gets a little bit older. And that he does mention here, which is of benefit, is that modesty is of two types. Is that we have an intrinsic type of modesty, which all human beings really have. There's something about human beings, and he mentions the example here of wanting to cover ourselves. Is that when a child is young, they might not uh, care that whether or not they're clothed or not clothed, or they might just that take their clothes off. But they reach a certain age where both the boys and girls alike, they'll start to cover themselves. And they will start to feel embarrassed that if they're not covered properly around other people. This is an, an intrinsic type of modesty. And that closely related to this is the modesty that we might have in relation to other people. There's certain things that then we then start to feel shy about. And um, that whereas when children are young, they'll just do certain things. They're not concerned about what other people are thinking about what it is that they do because they're children. They're just doing whatever it is that they're doing. But then they'll reach an age where mm, that they'll be embarrassed to do that in front of someone else. Or they'll refrain from doing something in front of someone else. And um, this is a good thing. And that haya is that all good. Everything about haya is good. And this is one of the biggest challenges for Muslims in general in the modern world, especially in Western societies, but also in relation to that raising children, how to preserve the haya of our children. This is not an easy thing to do. When you have so many factors in society, and we should analyze them, and we should understand them, how it's undermining and literally ripping up haya from the heart. And our Prophet went as far to say, Every religion has a quintessential trait. And the quintessential trait of Islam is modesty. And so much could be said about uh, modesty and um, its importance. The problem with modesty is that once it has been violated and people get used to being immodest, is that it's much more difficult to that get back. Whereas if it's preserved, then that it's much more likely to be kept. But once it's been violated, it's much more difficult to get back. You can still get it back. But our deen is a deen of hayat. Our Prophet ﷺ, this is one of his great traits. And this is amazing because normally you don't always think about hayat as one of these traits that both men and women strive for and want to have. But this, our Prophet ﷺ, is that he was a person of hayat. And that if you look at the description in the Shamal, it's amazing that how he was described and that he was compared to someone in society that would normally consider to be the most modest of people, but that's how he was, sallallahu He was extremely that modest and that even shy. And there were certain things that he simply just didn't do. There was certain things that he didn't look at there were certain things that he didn't say. And it reached in relation to his followers, where there were certain imams, like that of Imam Omar bin Abdul Aziz, um, that the, uh, the one who was considered to be the fifth or the sixth rightly Gadi Caliph, and that he used to use that another way of expressing what was, but well, the word, I'm going to have to say it now to say it, but he would use a different word to refer to the armpit. He didn't use the word ibt in Arabic, which is the Arabic word for armpit. He would say, ma tahta al-yad, that which is under the arm. So we, we, we would say, underarm. He wouldn't use the word armpit. He would use the word underarm because it was closer to adab. And he wanted to get his, that tongue used to only, that speaking with adab. 
And when you've been around refined people, one of the things that you notice is there's just certain things they don't say. There's just certain words they don't use. And if you think about in our context here in the United States, is that a lot of the curse words that people use when they're upset, when they're angry or whatever, they're foul, billah. The words themselves are foul, billah. And it tells us about the decadence of language. Whereas if you look in most traditional languages, right, one of the worst things that you could call someone, right, was like a donkey or something. Right? They didn't have like like, you know, horrible, horrible words to use, right, that are just utterly foul <clears throat> to insult other people. Um, and that even things like that, obviously, that people would be aware of using, but it tells you about something about our society and the words that people use to that express their anger and to um, attack other people is that people of Hayat don't do that. They don't talk like that. And that they are very careful about what it is that they say, making sure that they want to have adab. So all of this is the first type of hayat, is an intrinsic type of hayat that we have before other people. That naturally where that there's certain things that we won't, don't want to do, there's that things that we, you know, we want to cover ourselves. And we see this in our children. There's certain things that they'll do at home, but if there's other people there, whoop, they're on best behavior. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. And um, that we should that, that embrace that and that eventually teach them the higher degree of hayat, which is the second one, which is the type of hayat that is motivated by faith. And this is a hayat that prevents a believer from going against what Allah has forbidden. And so this is the, one of the great tasks of the parent. How can you, when Allah Ta'ala has naturally given that all people, haya, how can you help preserve that in your child and how can you channel that to the higher degree of haya, which is that refraining from what Allah Ta'ala has forbidden. So just as that natural, intrinsic type of haya prevents that child from doing certain things that might be looked down upon in the eyes of people, that what, we'll, what, our, what we have to think very carefully about is, is how can we help that child that transition to the higher degree? Where now it's about Allah Jalla Jalalu. And that's the higher of the two. So it's a hayat that is motivated by faith and it is a hayat that relates to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seeing us. And so for instance, when Imam Abdullah ibn Abi Haddad when he speaks about the great station of vigilance, muraqaba, which is the first of the two stages of ihsan, the reality of which is, is that where we realize Allah sees us at all times. He says that if, a, if modesty emanates from the heart as a result of bringing this to your mind, this is a sign that you've attained that something of this degree, something of this first degree of ihsan, i.e. vigilance. And so, haya is of the utmost importance and it goes hand in hand with the light of the intellect that then first develops. And so, when it says it is the first sign of the light, the light refers to the intellect, the aql. And Imam al-Ghazali draws the link between the ability to discern and the first light of the intellect being gifted to the child. So he's going to quote that Imam al-Ghazali here, and this is taken from um, that his book on disciplining the soul from the Ihya. When the signs of discretion appear in him, he should again be watched over carefully. So now we have to start paying closer attention to what it is that our children do. The first of these is the rudiments of shame. For when he begins to feel diffident and is ashamed of certain things so that he abandons them, the light of the intellect has dawned in him, whereby he sees that certain things are ugly and different from others, and begins <clears throat> to be ashamed of some things and not others. This is a gift to him from God, exalted be he. And uh, oftentimes in our society, this word shame um, is a very taboo word, and that's its own discussion, and kind of sifting through that, how to understand this word properly. 
But um, essentially what he means here at, at this stage is that there's certain things that we're embarrassed to do because of this. And this is considered to be a gift from Allah Jalla Jalalu. Because again, if you look at the whole purpose of raising a child, the whole purpose of cultivating a human being is to that inculcate in them the adab and the etiquette that they need to be able to draw near to Allah Jalla Jalalu. This is the whole goal. Is that how can you and I be people of adab? There's no way for us to enter into the Divine Presence and to come to know Allah Jalla Jalalu without adab. It, everything about the sacred law is adab. And that every single one of the divisions of the sacred law, from on one side of the spectrum, the commandments on the other side of the spectrum, the prohibitions, and those that are in between, from those things that are encouraged, and then those things that are disliked, and then that what is permissible in between. The entire sacred law is all adab. It's all about adab. And the more detailed practice that we have of the sacred law is that the more adab that we'll have. And the whole sacred law is there. And this is, if you approach it this way, you'll have a very that good understanding of what it is that you should be doing and be motivated to do so. It's ultimately about attaining the adab that we need to be able to that enter into the divine presence, have our heart that circumambulate in the meanings of remembrance of our Lord, Jalla Jalalu. So the intellect is called light. Because it guides one away from the deception of this world to the certainty of the next. So again, let's just sit and really emphasize the importance of the intellect here. That the nature of the world is that it's fleeting. The nature of the pleasures of this world is that they're fleeting. That you enjoy that meal and that moment and you overeat and then, oh, you're full? And you have to stand for 20 rakas and tarawiyah after. It's going, that it's fleeting. You benefit from it in the moment and then it just goes. And so by nature is that passion, desire, hawa, which it's the same word to use for the wind. It's volatile, like the wind. Right? The wind just could blow any direction, any which way. And a leaf is just going to be blowing in the air because it's been blown by the wind. This is the way that the hawa is. It's volatile. It's just all over the place. Whereas the intellect is the opposite. Is that the intellect is supposed to think about the consequences of things in this world. And then most importantly is that the end result insofar as it relates to the next world. So the intellect is the exact opposite of the hawa. And the essence of religion is what? Is that curbing our desires and things that we want for in, in, in order to do what Allah wants from us. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the essence of what it means to be a religious person. This is the essence of that the spiritual path as well. And so it is the intellect that gives us that ability to think about the consequences, to think about the future, to think about what's going to happen that as a result of me doing whatever it is that I'm doing. And that our Prophet ﷺ, that he said, the temporal world, the dunya, is the abode of one who has no abode. Wealth is the possession of the one who has no wealth. The one who gathers them has no intellect. And what he means here is that, that one's not using the intellect properly. Because if they would really think about it, is that why are you going to latch on to a world that you know is going to go? We all know we're going to die. Every single human being knows that. No matter what these people say, no matter that what they try to create and how long they try to freeze bodies and how many different types of pills and things that they try to that create to postpone death. Death is certain. Allah says, worship your Lord until that certainty comes to you, i.e. death. We know we're all going to die. And this whole idea that they can somehow that be find in our DNA that what, you know, and they can just remove death from it so that we can all live eternally, this is just ridiculous. It's never going to happen. And um, that 
Allah Ta'ala has written yani, that death upon everyone and the way, we re- that the way that the Qur'an refers to it is that ذَائِقَةِ mot is that every single one of us is going to taste death and the intelligent person is that wants to taste death in a very different way than the person whose heart is closed off and hard-hearted and distant from Allah Jalla Jalla For the believer, al-maut tuhfat al-mu'min. Is that for the believer, is that death is a gift. It's a hadith. Is that death is the gift of the believer. For the person of iman. And for the person who wants to be reunited with the ones he loves. Rasulullah, the ummahat al-mu'mineen, the great sahaba, ahl al-bayt rasulillah the great imams of this deen, the awliya of the ummah. Is that if that's what's in our heart, that's what you're going to. You're going to be reunited with your loved ones, the ones that we really should be loving. So anyhow, is that, and likewise wealth, is that wealth is the possession of the one who has no wealth. We tend to forget how beneficial these teachings are in the modern world, in every time, but especially in the modern world. That Look how beneficial this is. Think about how many people, that's their whole goal. It's just money, 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 money. And the Prophet is saying, it is the possession of the one who has no wealth. Meaning they don't have true wealth. Al-ghina, ghina nafs. Is that true wealth is wealth of the heart. Is it being rich in your heart and not being in need of any worldly thing. And not letting yourself be imprisoned by any lowly worldly thing. Those are the true kings. Those are the ones who are truly wealthy. Is that the ones who realize is that their only need is that of only Allah do they need. They do not need of anyone or anything. And that these people, that Allah Ta'ala, even if they're outwardly poor, is that will allow them to live in a way that the the, just the, the, the the joy of life that most people are seeking is that they attain in ways internally by certain states that Allah brings to their heart that which it is impossible for the people of dunya to attain even were they to spend all their wealth for. So the light begins at this point and then develops with time. The intellect helps the person move forward in the world without becoming attached to it. So again, this doesn't mean that we don't uh, prepare ourselves to be successful in the world. No, we're here in the world and that we that need to take from it. But there's a difference between taking from it in a way that taking our needs from it to prepare for the next world as opposed to thinking that this is where we're going to remain. It is this, for this reason that the Prophet ﷺ told the famous companion Abu Dhar, O oh, Abu Dhar, there is no aql like Preparation. This implies planning preparation in a worldly sense. When looked at in the light of the first hadith, we see that it means preparing and planning for this world, but without attachment to it. This is a subtle skill that needs nurturing from the moment that this light appears. This is the essence of tadbir, which was discussed earlier. So the Arabic word here for preparation is tadbir. La aqla tadbir, and that oftentimes that we think of tadbir. In a negative sense, um, this uh, idea of management, this idea of planning, but it only becomes negative if that we excessively plan, or is that we, when we plan, we rely upon that our planning and our management of things. You have to plan, right? And it's from intellect to plan. Um, but we don't want to excessively plan nor do we want to rely upon our plans. And that's the balance. And people are usually one of two extremes. They, they either plan too much or they plan too little. There's some people whose life is just in a wreck. It's chaotic. And they might say, they might say that, oh, we're not supposed to plan, brother. No, you're not supposed to keep you... you know, it's good to have that a structure to your life, goals that you're trying to achieve. But at the same time, is that you don't overly plan. 
and this is what I want. And if my child does not get into this school, or they don't get this job, or they don't get it right, or if I doesn't, this doesn't happen at this time at this. No, that is the extreme balance is really what we want. And from from this perspective, is that that this is what our prophet is saying is that there's no akka like preparation. You can see this with children. Is that when they're young, they're just living in the moment. They don't know anything else other than the moment. And one of the things the Hakim said, which was very beautiful, uh, is, that, um, is that it's one of the reasons that children can forget so easily. Right? Another child takes their toys, they start crying, and then two minutes later, everyone's friends again, and everything's okay. And that he said part of it is, is that because they have an ability to live in the moment, where he said that we as adults, is that sometimes we're so worried about the future and we're dwelling on the past and not living in the moment that it eats us away. And oftentimes in relation to our relationships as well, we can't let go. Children can let go, so they forget. Right? And obviously there's limits to that discussion, of course, that, and boundaries that are set by the sacred law uh, um, and um, that we always have to make that, that, um, you know, that if... if uh, putting uh, abuse and, and issues of that nature, that uh, issues like that, that need to be dealt with. Um, that's, those principles don't apply in the same way. But um, as they start getting a little bit older, then they have more an ability to think about the consequences of their actions, to think about the future. And we want to nurture this in them. And ideally from a younger age, teach them that uh, responsibility and to slowly give them responsibilities. And then they start to see the consequences of, for instance, neglecting that responsibility. And then, that as they get older as well, is that we want to give them the right perspective, especially when it comes to this, this idea of preparation. And again, you have parents that are in two extremes. There are those who just completely neglect the future of their children here in this world, which is wrong. Right? No, you are required as a parent, and we've you know, already established this first and foremost to help them get close to Allah. But you're also required to get them, give them the tools that they need to survive in this cutthroat society. And it's not easy. It is not easy. Were a Muslim child, young man or young woman to be on their own at age 18 or 20 or have graduated from college in this society... Uh, yes, in some places it might be easier than others because there's other like-minded people. But in general, it is very cutthroat out there and it's not easy. We have to give them the skills to weather that storm. But at the same time, we don't want to go to extremes. And, to, that, and sometimes parents do this to their children. Is that they try to micromanage their lives. And that they are that too involved in the sense it's almost like that they want it to be as they want it to be. Your child, you can't do that with your children. And sometimes that could be more harmful than neglecting them. If you try to micromanage them or overly control them, you got to find that balance. And what you have to realize is that whatever it is that you do, it will be reflected in your child. They'll pick up on that before they'll pick up actually on your words. So that, that if we, that in their mind, you have to do this, you have to do that, in the future, um, and then that doesn't happen, is that that's not a, a healthy thing to do with our children. We should encourage them to prepare. We should encourage them to develop a plan, to find a career track, to develop interests. But then um, that be very careful in terms of how we manage that where it doesn't become excessive. Now, so now he's going to, I'm going to read his reflection, which I think is of benefit here. He said, this section describes the beginning of intellect. The Prophet ﷺ said, address people according to their level of their intellect. And um, this is a general hadith that relates to adults as well. And um, um, that we're, this is what we're required to do. Different people have different ability, thinking abilities. And you're supposed to speak to people according to their level of intellect. But it definitely applies to children as well. And so he relates it to, the, to, to children. Implying that the intellect develops in stages. This is an important principle in teaching. As children develop, 
we need to extend their language and understanding by monitoring their development and continually stretching them a little further. And um, the writings of Vygotsky has been important in how I apply these principles. In my mind, the prophetic advice is consistent with Vygotsky's zone of proximal development. He described it as, quote, the distance between the actual developmental level as determined by independent problem solving and the level of potential development is determined through problem solving under adult guidance or in collaboration with more capable peers. As the intellect develops, the person responsible for the child's tarbiya should be constantly aware of what the young person is able to do independently or what he or she can do with help. This should be borne in mind in relation to tasks related to behavior, adab, language or cognition and knowledge. The adult should push the young person a little bit further and doing so, develop the intellect. The following sections describe some of the principles of developing the intellect, including exposure to the Quran from an early age, the etiquette of teaching, the need for play and relaxation, the need for the child to learn the consequence of his or her actions. So, that in general, what he's saying here is, is that based upon this hadith and based upon this sinnatamiz, the age of discrimination, which is the first stage of development of the intellect, is that what we do is that we slowly push the children that a little bit more, a little bit more, in a way that we're not neglecting them, nor are we putting too much on them, but we recognize where they're at, and depending upon their age, we slowly push them. And that we that put little challenges out there for them to attain. And um, if we think about this in relation to Ramadan, um, uh, then that there might be certain things that we do when children reach a certain age, that they might not be able to fast the whole day, but we say, okay, fast until dhuhr. Right? We might start with that when we, it, they reach an appropriate age. And then, if they do that fast till dhuhr, we start to reward them for doing so. And then, that maybe the next year or the year after that, we push them to fast to asr. And then, that eventually, is that they might be able to that fast an entire day. But, and then once they can fast the entire day, they might not be able to fast the entire 30 days of Ramadan, but we have them fast a few days of the week, or at least a few days of the month. And then increasingly, and when, when, when they reach a certain age, and children are different. Some of them from age 9, for instance, they just are able to fast all 30 days of Ramadan, and it's easy for them. Others struggle with it, and some really want their food, and, and so forth and so on. And as long as they're not... Um, legally responsible that you should just be very gentle with them and each one is that you want to set another mark for right so the one that's moving quicker is that don't stop there keep giving them something to move towards and this is this is you know this is really the key don't take baby steps when you can take bigger steps but don't expand the rubber band too much or so that it would break figure out what's best for each child and what and where they're at, and then that we should make it something where it's enjoyable for them, where that we go out of our way those first few days that they're fasting, as that that we give them the food that they want, or that we that cook them the meal that they want, or to give them some type of reward for doing so, uh, based upon their accomplishments. So that this is in general um, how, how we should approach this, and um, um, again. There's two extremes that people tend to have here, but uh, we always want to be challenging them to that go to the next step. And um, that he's going to go into more detail about what this means in, in certain matters. So he says, Al-Ghazali and others identify modesty as one of the traits that indicate the onset of intellectual development. Consistent with other traditions, he implies it is a noble trait that should be developed and encouraged. It is one of the key characteristics of all of the Abrahamic faiths. So not just Muslims. And this is a part of that religious people. Uh, this is a part of religious tradition. And, um, that, um, uh, and there's a hadith of our Prophet وسلم, uh, where he says um, that um, um, he says وسلم, uh, about what has been inherited from previous prophetic teachings, is that um, in them it, that if you uh, if you do not have modesty, then do as you wish, right? Okay, Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, 
And what is indicated here is that this is a part of other that prophetic traditions. And this idea is not an encouragement to just tell people to do whatever it is that they want to do, but it's to indicate to them is that it's this trait of modesty that oftentimes regulates our behavior and prevents us from doing things uh, that are inappropriate. Um, uh, you can read your, on your own on page 54 and 55 um, the discussion um, and um, there's benefits in, uh, in these. And then we'll just take one more line for today and we'll go a little bit easy in Ramadan. Um, so now we're on page 57 and it's titled Developing the Intellect Adherence to the Quran. And that this is one of the greatest traditional principles uh, of raising children and educating children is when they reach a certain age is that helping them study the Quran is it making this be the first thing that it is that they study and um, that developing intellect adherence to the Quran so that he says is that he should make him adhere to the study of the Quran for it is knowledge of mighty status okay and so generally speaking when the child reaches this age of discrimination the very first thing and the most important thing of all that we want them to be exposed to is the book of Allah now ideally is that the Book of Allah would have been a part of the child's life from the beginning. And from the time that the child is in the womb of the mother, is that hopefully that the mother and the father had been reciting Qur'an. And that now we can also have Qur'an playing in our homes. Um, and that hopefully from the time that the child's been in the womb, is that it's, been, it's heard the recitation of the Qur'an. Hopefully from the time that the child has been one, two, three, four years old, He's heard the Qur'an being recited in the home. And this is what we want. We want our homes to be illuminated and adorned with the recitation of the Qur'an. As that our Prophet said, وسلم, is that the home in which no Qur'an is recited is like an abandoned house. And so that you can just imagine and go into that a neighborhood where that a house has been foreclosed and the windows are boarded up and that everything inside has been stripped and you go inside and there's cobwebs and insects and mice and all kinds of stuff and it's not a place that you want to be. That's, the, that's like a house that has no Qur'an in it. Right? And whereas the opposite is true, is that if you want to really adorn your home, the recitation of the Qur'an. And we fall short in this, may Allah ta'ala forgive us is that our homes should be homes that the Qur'an is recited regularly and that people can hear the recitation of the Qur'an and the children hear the recitation of the Qur'an and people walking by can hear the recitation of the Qur'an. We want our homes to be homes of Qur'an where Qur'an is recited during the day and by night and it's being learned and it's being memorized and it's being talked about and it's being studied. And so then he quotes Imam Ghazali here where he says, Next, he should busy at school learning the Qur'an, the traditions, yani of the Prophet entails the stories of devout men and women, so that the love of righteousness may take root in his heart. So children are a clean slate, and that our goal is to make them love the Book of Allah, love the Sunnah of our Prophet and love the righteous folk. Is it from the time that they're young, we want to encourage in their hearts to love the awliya of Allah. And I guarantee you, this will be one of the greatest things that protects them throughout their life, is the love of the awliya. If they come to love the awliya, and why do they love the awliya? Because these are the people of Allah. These are the people that have dedicated themselves to Allah. And that they, Allah Ta'ala has brought them close to Him. How could you not love them? These are the people that have put the Qur'an and the sunnah into practice. And so how can we not love them? He says, we've already discussed the connection between Adab character and the Qur'an in the context of the hadith that the Qur'an is Allah's banquet, the table spread. And once the child has developed discernment, he or she is now ready for direct teaching. 
The first thing to be taught should be the Qur'an as it is the primary source of Islamic knowledge. And because learning the adab of studying the Qur'an sets a pattern for more general study. Okay? So yes, you can introduce the children to the Qur'an before the age of discrimination. And, but it's done in a very gentle way. And sometimes children, it's like that. They'll hear you reciting Qur'an and then they'll pick up on it. And then they'll be able to recite it back. And that's perfectly fine. You don't say, I'm not going to teach the child anything until age seven or until they reach the age of discrimination. Uh, that depends upon the child. But where formal study starts to take place, that's at the age of, uh, the, the age of discrimination. And there are other ahkam that relate to it as well, is that before the child re- reaches the age of discrimination, they shouldn't carry a mushaf. Right? Uh, because for obvious reasons, you don't know if they're able to um, that uh, protect it and to treat it in the way that it needs to be treated. Once they reach the age of discrimination, um, is that then they're able to carry a mushaf, they're able to bring you a mushaf. Um, and then in relation to that children having wudu, uh, when, when they learn, uh, this is something that we should teach them to do. Uh, and um, that when they bring us a book of the Quran, we should ask them, do you have wudu, do you not have wudu? Uh, uh, and be careful when it comes to carrying the book of Allah Ta'ala. Uh, and if they're studying the Quran regularly, there's dispensations for children being in a state of wudu for study because they're children and it's more difficult. But we should, in general, in, in general, encourage this. Just as we should, in general, from the time that they're young, encourage them to keep their wudu. And if you do that from the time that they're young, in gentle, right? Every time you break your wudu, you make wudu. Or if you relieve yourself, that you make wudu. That becomes a habit in them. And once it becomes a habit in them, it's easy for them. They don't think twice about it. Oh, that's just something you do. That whenever you use the restroom, you just quickly wash yourself and you maintain a state of wudu. These are all good things without imposing it heavily upon them uh, and, and, and making things difficult upon them. So, it's, it's one is that the Qur'an is the Qur'an. These are the words of Allah. Nothing is more important for us to learn than Allah's book. This is the most important thing of all for us to learn. So this is what we start with for that reason. But then also, because you learn certain adab, you learn a set of etiquettes when you learn the Qur'an. And that those etiquettes is that they set the stage for anything else that is we're going to learn after that. And once you've been exposed to traditional learning, is that uh, secular learning is easy. It's very easy. It's very easy. If you have that studied traditionally in a traditional madrasa and you've followed the curriculum, is that coming back to study in the universities here is very easy. Very easy, especially at the lower levels. And part of it is, is that there is virtually no emphasis that is placed upon memorization in Western culture. Whereas if you've gotten yourself used to memorization in rigorous study, where you are that taking that a page of the Quran a day, or sometimes two pages, or a half a page, and you are by rote repeating that time and time again, time and time again, memorizing that, that studying for the SATs and the achievements and later on the MCATs or the GREs or whatever, that's easy, right? Because you've gotten used to memorizing. So memorizing facts that you're going to then need for that... Um, that uh, test taking actually becomes very easy and that the vast majority of people that I know that have spent time memorizing Quran that they're very good test takers right? that's my experience and not always but the vast majority of, 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 of people that I've seen that, that's, that's their state now yes developing analytical skills to go into higher degrees of study at a master's or PhD level that's something else that comes with time but ideally we want to join between the two, between hifth and fahm, where we have the ability to memorize and we have the ability to understand. Um, this is really, and both are considered to be important. And when it comes to transmitted knowledge, okay, yeah, what is called the, the ilm that is of, ilm ulum naqliya, that memorization is very important. Right? There's just certain things you have to memorize. And in any traditional track that of learning is that 
in order to be considered to be a scholar, there are certain texts that you would have had to put to heart, to put to memory. And, and the vast majority of, of, of our teachers is that they then teach without books, and they actually are the book. Like in Mauritania, Marabut al never had a book. Right? He would, there's virtually no text that you could have brought to him except that he's going to teach it to you. And without a book, he is the book. And that he's taught the text so many different times, and he's so familiar with their commentaries, and they combine to what Allah Ta'ala brought to his heart of understanding, and then he'll tailor it to you. And sometimes he'll give you only the most basic knowledge. And there would have been, I remember times where there was another opinion, but he's like, no, this is the opinion. And like, you know there's another opinion. He's like, no, this is the opinion. And he's teaching you that to build solid foundations. Don't worry about all these other things. Right? Build solid foundations. And really, that our textual tradition, it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing how our textual tradition developed and the purpose of it. And that when you that study, for instance, in any traditional that school, like when we studied fiqh in, in Tareem, is that there's a series of texts that you study. And you don't go to the more advanced text until you've mastered the one who came before it. But then over time, that you've studied six, seven, eight, nine, ten different texts, is that the foundational knowledge is solidified in your mind. You know naturally that what is the focus and then what you need to strive towards and what to focus on in relation to yourself and then other people. Anyhow, that there's so much that you learn from memorizing Quran from an early age. Much of it relates to the etiquette of learning. That again, that in most case scenarios is that we are bereft of in modern classrooms. Now, so then he mentions um, that Allahumma salli sallam alayhi explains that the Quran should be the first thing that the child hears. The mother of my own teacher read the whole Quran from memory while she was feeding him. She would recite the Quran from beginning to end so that by the time he had been weaned, he had heard it many times and was very familiar with it. No. He says this is a reference to Habib Ahmad Haddad, who was one of the great scholars of the last generation. Bilfaqi continues to the first statement of the Quran should be the phrase, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. This has been discussed previously as one of the adab of eating. Then the child should be taught the opening chapter known as Al Fatiha so that Allah opens up his heart. The adab of the studying the Quran should become one of the transferable skills and etiquettes that the child should use for the rest of his or her life in all areas of study. These etiquettes have been compiled by Imam Nawi in his book, At-Tibyan Fi Adab Hamadat Al-Quran. <clears throat> this is a very good book that we should have on our shelves. Um, and um, it's been translated into English by uh, Sheikh Musa Ferber, titled Etiquette with the Quran. And it's a translated a translation of the seminal work of Imam Nawi. And he just lists a few here, just to that show that how through learning the Quran with etiquette that it's going to help us in everything else that we learn. That among the adab the students should show are the following. He should study from the best teacher available. It has been said that this knowledge is religion, so examine well he who from you take your knowledge. The student must look to his teacher with the eye of respect, believe in his competence completely in his superiority over his contemporaries, since this makes it more likely that one will benefit from him. The student should take care of his appearance. He or she should enter and exit the classroom showing good manners, including greeting and not sitting between people except with their permission. So this is something important, uh, is that we learn to send salams. He or she should enter the classroom showing good manners, including greeting. Is that we should teach children, is that whenever it is that they enter into a room, is that they send salams. And that they, um, that whether it, if in, especially if they're living with their grandmother or their grandfather or their grandmother or their grandfather is coming to visit or is that their parents have that other people coming over to the house it is from adab that when the child enters into the room is that they greet people that are present and it, once they reach a certain age 
the male children go and they shake the hands of the men, and the female children go and they shake the hands of the females that are present. But this is an important etiquette that we want to encourage, is that sending salams, greeting each other, and even to the extent that, in the sacred law, is that if you enter into a gathering and people are there, you send salams, it's actually recommended to send salams were you to leave and come back another time. Um, anyhow, is that we want to inculcate this adab uh, that uh, in our children, the student should not raise his voice, laugh, or speak without need, and should always be attentive of the teacher. So teaching our children manners, and at first they're going to make mistakes. First they're going to be loud, and first they're but slowly we teach them manners about how it is. Where eventually, is that we want them to be able to sit in a classroom, cross-legged, without fidgeting still listening attentively and they know how we teach them how to take notes we teach them how to review and this is absolutely key because if we don't learn these manners then how are our children going to ever be in the gatherings of the righteous to benefit from them is that we have to teach them how to do this and we do so slowly and so that this is something we should do from time to time that in small ways on a regular basis in our own homes getting our children used to sitting cross-legged still. And obviously when they're young, it's harder, but slowly as they get older. He or she should be patient with the teacher even if the teacher is moody. <laughs> Whoever is impatient with the humiliation of learning will spend his life in the blindness of ignorance. MashaAllah. Whoever is impatient with the humiliation of learning will spend his life and the blindness of ignorance. We were speaking about this yesterday in Roha, and that's the quote, but we have to humiliate ourselves to learn. And sometimes we have to do what might even be considered to be embarrassing, but it's not embarrassing, nor is it humiliating. Is it on the contrary, is that it is that honor to be able to sit in gatherings of learning, and even if the teacher is 40 years younger than us, 30 years younger, it's not about age. That oftentimes some of the greatest teachers are only 20 years old or only 25 years old. Some of them that might only in the old days would have been only 15 years old. Imam Shafi was giving fatwa and was that giving legal opinions as a teenager. And uh, so really it's about the knowledge itself and that it is an honor for us to sit in any gathering to learn it. And then I'll leave the reflection and discussion uh, for you all to read through. Uh, if there's any uh, questions, we can just take a couple questions. So the question is um, with non-Muslim family members, um, and sometimes actually that even happens with Muslim family members that are not fully practicing, that people that want to encourage their daughter to wear hijab or either gender to pray or to fast and that they think that this is excessive because of their age and so forth. Um, you know, usually the, the these types of things, um, the only... Uh, the, the main quality that we need to deal with situations like this uh, is what is called mudara. In, Arab, in English, it's tact. Um, you, you, you just need to have tact. And um, um, throughout life, we will be exposed to people who um, uh, might, or might not help us in our path. So it's something that we will face. And in the end, that what you're required to do is, is your best. You should do your best. And there's always going to be negative influences on ourselves and our children. There will be that, that foundations you're trying to build in your children that are undermined in other ways that are outside of your control. And so that I, I think that the, the best thing is, is that to use tact in these matters. And on one hand, that tact is that balance somewhere in the middle knowing the two extremes of what you can't do. 
So just to completely disregard your parents and your family and to be rude to them and to, you know, that obviously is out. But to also just um, let that perspective take root in your child and to not show concern for them, it's also out. The balance is somewhere in the middle. And sometimes um, that you can speak to these family members and to indicate to them uh, in ways that they understand that why these things are important. So in terms of prayer, for instance, one of the ways that you can explain to people that about the, uh, about the, the benefits of prayer is that think about, he used the word transferable skills here, right? Transferable skills are things they're talking about in academic departments now, uh, primarily in humanities departments to justify their existence and why they should still receive fund- funding. Uh, but there is some reality to them in that just think about praying five times a day, what that does for a human being. What does that teach you? That teaches you to that, um, have a schedule, that teaches you to be responsible, that teaches you to plan ahead, that teaches you to that diligence, that teaches you perseverance, that teaches you so many different traits. And so that if you present it like that to your family, it's very different if they only see the religious side. Now, even having to say only see the religious side is a problem because obviously primarily it's a religious thing. But sometimes you have to speak to people in a language that they understand. And if you say that mom I, or dad or whoever, that I want my children to be successful, I want them to do it, right? And this is one of the ways that I'm helping inculc. I think they, that could possibly help them. Uh, so tact would be doing things of this nature in terms of how we present these things to them. Um, and then that knowing how to just very subtly that have direct lines of communication with our children and, and um, um, that sometimes being very open with them because they will be exposed to them. And, um, you know, sometimes it requires conversations. Um, whenever we, for instance, go on family vacations, you know, I usually have to sit down with my kids before and oftentimes, you know, everyone in my family, is, except with the exception of my mother, is not Muslim, that you have to explain certain things to them. You might see this, you might see that. And so they're not shocked when they see it. And then that you have kind of small little huddles and talks during the trip where you explain things that happened during that day. And then kind of at the end, where you kind of walk them through how to understand what it is, uh, what they saw. And so I think that um, our children will be exposed to a lot. So we cannot baby them. right? Uh, we have to let them experience life. And we have to take every opportunity where things, you don't unnecessarily expose them to too much, but as they're exposed to it, you take it as an opportunity to teach them maturity on how to deal with those situations. Because ideally, is that you want that young man and young woman to be 20, 25 years old, and they're firm in their deen, and they're confident, and they have the skills that they need to navigate this crazy world in which we live, and they're going to be strong. We have to teach both men and women to be strong. It is a hostile world out there to religion in a very real way. And um, that, inshallah, that uh, if we do things like this, but tact, I think it really centers around there. Yeah, so as I said that, I thought about that in my mind. Maybe I should clarify that as I was saying that, and I didn't clarify that. I just left it open-ended. Yeah, so uh, Quran should not be background. It shouldn't just be in the background and we speaking over it or doing other things. Um, now, um, if you're alone and you're like eating and you're listening while, the, you know, while you're eating, that is fine, uh, but you should be listening to it. Now, playing it while you sleep or... Um, what I was really, the context of me mentioning it was like if our children are sleeping, it's perfectly fine in their room to play Quran, right? Um, uh, but if for an adult, is that uh, when Quran's being played, that we should be listening attentively uh, and it shouldn't just be playing in the background, yeah. Any other uh, quick questions?
Bless us in this month of Ramadan. Ya May we experience the joys and the beauties of Ramadan. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unlock for us the meanings of His book. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. May we have increased understanding in His book. Ya Rabbil Alameen. May Allah ta'ala bless us to be people of taqwa and bless us to be people of bir. Bless us to be people of virtue and have all of the akhlaq and hasanah that are embodied in the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. May we have a complete mutabah of Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam inwardly and outwardly may we all have long lives in the obedience of Allah may the very last thing that we say we exit the world be la ilaha illallah <coughs> Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam completely actualizing its means inwardly and outwardly wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ala alihi 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 w